Son, can you turn off that X-Men podcast for a minute? We need to talk to you about something. Uh, what's up, dads? We have some concerns about your behavior recently. What are you talking about? Constantly turning in your homework late. You're ditching school to model those those stupid buttonfly jeans. You're carrying around a gun twice as big as your sister. And what's with the goddamn pouches? The pouches are cool, Dad. I store my snacks in them. And that was fine when it was just one or two. But you're literally wearing a bandolier of pouches. And I need them. I have a lot of snacks. You guys just don't understand. What's there to understand? You look like a freak. Wearing, wearing foil and holograms. And why is there a trading car attached to your hip? And, 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 and where did your goddamn feet go? They're too big. They need to be smaller. Where did you pick up this behavior, huh? Who taught you to do this? You are right, dads. I learned it by watching you. I found your long boxes in the garage. I read your X-Force and your Youngblood comics. All those pouches and big metal shoulder pads and tiny feet. I've never seen anything so... So... Cool! Why wouldn't I want to emulate that? And buttonfly jeans are just safer for your junk! Shh. Shh, it's okay. It's okay, son. I'm gonna get you help. Listen to this podcast. Three is a magic number. Yes, it is. It's a magic number Somewhere in the ancient mystic trinity You get three As a magic number That's right, we do Foley art now! <laughs> oh god, alright. So yeah, that was probably my favorite thing we've ever done for this podcast. But uh, anyway, uh, guys, the Three Amigos are back. It has been... Far too goddamn long. I'm very happy to have Rob here in the basement with, with me and Matt. Uh, today is a very special episode of WMQ&A. Not just because it's a Three Amigos episode, but that is always cause for celebration. But we are here to talk about PSA comics. Uh, very special issues that deal with smoking, drug use, guns, uh, you know, all that stuff. Uh, preachy treats, I think. Preachy treats. That's what we're calling them. That's what we're calling them. <laughs> Uh, so, Rob, I, I would love for you to do the honors to, to go first. What is uh, what is the first comic on the docket school today? School is back in session. Mr. Horton's Bicycle Shop is open for business. <laughs> smoke them like your daddy did. <laughs> okay, and with smoking. Ask your parents, kids. <laughs> now, as uh, none of you probably know, when I'm uh, not busy uh, raiding every uh, dollar bin in the tri-state area, I'm uh, actually a uh, registered respiratory therapist. So the first thing I've got to, you know, fire out of the gates here are these two gems that I found. Uh, Shooter Era Marvel. Um, very first one, uh, 1982. Uh, the American Cancer Society uh, teamed up with Marvel to talk about the dangers of smoking with uh, Spider-Man, Storm, and Luke Cage. They battle uh, the aptly titled uh, Smokescreen. Now, Smokescreen runs a sports betting racket at a local arcade, and he uses his goons to, like, lure in, like, the local high school athletes. Now, uh, hold on a second. When you say a, a sports betting racket out of an arcade, just because we live in the age of esports where that's actually considered a thing, are, are they taking bets when, say, a Donkey Kong kill screen comes up? Or are they betting on, like, actual athletics? Oh, 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 no, no. When, like, high school athletes are, say, like, you know, doing, like, you know, their track meets and things like that. Okay. And this is their way, you know, because they, they place big, big, big money 
on uh, these meets. On high school sports. Yeah. And this is not Texas with high school football, no, right? No, no, no. So our, our, our um, I, I guess you can say protagonist in the story, our, our young Brett, who uh, they describe as, you know, an Olympic level to be athlete, um, they decide that they're going to get him hooked on the dangers of cigarettes. <laughs> and by doing that, he's going to throw his big meat and they're going to make big, big money off of this. This is, of course, until, you know, Luke Cage is uh, kind of like spotting out. And he realizes that there's something wrong with our, our friend Brett here. He's been, you know, ditching school. He's getting C's and D's now. Then uh, Spider-Man jumps into this and teams up with Luke Cage. And then, for no reason whatsoever, they bring Storm into it and to investigate. Because the the X Man who has this habit of pronouncing the use of her powers <laughs> is great for the subtle stuff. <laughs> but yeah, no, basically it's it's about the seduction of Brett through you know the evils of cigarettes and you know there's a wonderful little bit that you see a lot of these PSAs where you know Brett is in school and his uh, biology teacher is teaching you know the dangers of cigarettes and basically you have what you could describe now as like one of those like Hickman type infographics where you know she's pointing pointing to a chalkboard and you have the entire list of you know you know basically every anatomical you know consequence of smoking sinister secret number five emphysema (laughs) this is you know bronze age ridiculousness Mm -hmm. Uh, i mean it's it's over preachy i'll get back to that in a second um one has to wonder, though, you know, when the story's resolved and everything, you know, Storm, you know, going back to the mansion, she's going to, like, slip a little pamphlet under Logan's pillow, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and more importantly, I wonder if she would get really worried about secondhand bamfing, if that is a thing, in fact. Oh, that is that is a good point. <laughs> now the point is moot because we've got the gold balls, and I'm going to leave it at that. Like, spoilers. <laughs> Um, and then secondly, you know, if you... Gold balls is the Konami code. I just figured it out. Oh. <laughs> you know, and we all know at this point that Wolverine can no longer smoke in comics. I actually heard an interview with, um, Louis Simonson and June Brigman, uh, on Unpacking the Power, Power Pack. Hi, Jeff and Rick. Hey, Jeff and Rick. <laughs> um, where in the recent... Power Pack one-shot they released. There's a scene where Wolverine is in the woods and he's popping a piece of gum into his mouth. That was originally a cigar. And Marvel's like, can't do that anymore. I don't see Wolverine as, like, the the type to, like, pop a big red. (laughs) I I think they actually made the point. It's like, yeah, you you don't want to be around Wolverine when he's trying to kick the nicotine habit. It would probably end real poorly for you. Kind of follow that up. In uh, 1987, a few years later, there was um, a respiratory uh, pharmaceutical company called Allen & Hansberry's that... Sounds classy. T- yeah, teamed up with uh, Marvel to bring us Captain America meets the asthma monster. Now, take one wild guess who wrote this story. Ooh, let's see. Captain America meets... Spoiler, the- Wheezy Simonson! <laughs> oh! <laughs> ah! <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we've got this ridiculous villain, you know, the asthma monster, who's basically... Jealous of people's ability to breathe normally, so he attacks them with allergens. And <laughs> the only way to defeat him is to correctly use your MDI. Now, I wish that I had like multiple copies of this because, like, any given night, you know, when I have like the ER duty, I would totally hand this out to kids. I, I, I think it's just absolutely beautiful. I mean, come on, look at Cap here. You know, he's got the the tight seal lips around the MDI. He triggers it correctly. Come on, this is educational gold here. But Cap is demonstrating how to use an inhaler. 
Well, on one panel, it, he, it's impeccably drawn. He doesn't actually go through the, the, the motions. <laughs> but uh, this this kind of like leads me into you know one one of my big things that you know Dan and Matt really know. Whenever I'm looking through a dollar bin, there's this particular comic that I'm kind of comic that I'm looking for. Hashtag preachy treats, <laughs> and it's basically a lot of those from the '80s because that was a thing in the '80s. Whether you're watching Different Strokes with Mr. Horton's Bicycle Shop or and, Cartoon All Stars to the Rescue, oh yeah, you know, I think like Mr. Belvedere even had an episode. I mean, everything was just mm-hmm. you know, you know, there is an episode of Family Ties, and it is. Tremendously well acted. Is that the one with Boner? No, that was no. Th- this one's a drinking one. It's Tom Hanks. Oh yes, as Alex P. Keaton's alcoholic uncle, and Tom Hanks puts in a hell of a performance. Uncle Ned. Yes, I remember Uncle, uncle Ned. Ned. Yes, it how, is. A, wait, how far apart in age are Tom Hanks and, and, and Michael Keaton? Uh, or not? Oh God, damn. <laughs> I, I think Michael J. Michael Fox, J. Fox might have actually been older than Tom Hanks then. I don't, but yeah, he was his uncle, and he was had a drinking problem. They did a whole episode, and it's it's actually a pre- Tom Hanks does a great job, and it's a really well done episode of that show. But it is a preachy treat if there ever it's was a one. preachy treat. Now I'll get into the origin of this. This is a slightly annoying, you know, autobiographical pause as as I am want to do. Do it. Um, Halloween of 1986. Uh, I was living in Lewis, Delaware at the time, and uh, that was the uh, year that I was introduced. And you know, the delights of mall trick or treating, the Rehoboth Mall. There was a Radio Shack. Now, of course, you know you're going everywhere. You know, you're getting your Reese's pieces, your Bonkers, which was like the shit of the day. <laughs> you went to Radio Shack. They didn't give you candy or like a free battery, even there was a free battery in the club month. Um, you got a copy of the Tandy Whiz Kids comics. Which was basically, it was nothing but product placement for, you know, Tandy word processors. However, they all had a very heavy preachy, you know, either anti-drugs or I think there was like three different ones that were all anti-drugs. There's definitely a WizKids meets Superman and Lex Luthor one. A couple DC titans. That I, yeah. I, I found somewhere at one point or another. But, uh, I mean, this is something, I mean, uh, in the last couple of years, I think I've gotten like three or four of them. You know, in the dollar bins, you know, along with like, you know, the Spider-Man power pack, uh, Spider-Man and Skids from the New Mutants. That was kind of like another follow-up, you know, child of, abuse. Of all the New Mutants. And I'll just say, you know, the child abuse issues I'm not even going to uh, touch. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. Some of them are well-written. Most of them aren't. It's just, it's amazing that whole time period, you know, when you had very kind of like family-friendly light entertainment fair. And then you would get these big message interludes like you know that was really big on television that was big when these books you know it's like the different strokes i think is sort of the golden example of this i mean poor arnold all he ever wanted to do was like eat cheeseburgers play at the arcade and not get his ass kicked by the gooch and here you know he's going to you know mr horton's bicycle shop you know the man's feeding him wine showing him you know pornographic mice cartoons and then poor dudley and you know yeah, neptune, neptune king, king of the, of the sea, sea. As, as, as a kid of the 80s, I mean, it's just like, it made you really feel that, like, the world is a really horrible, fucked up place. <laughs> is that is that how you learned St- Stranger Danger from that from that uh, specific episode? I think episode that's of how Different we Strokes? all learned Stranger Danger. I mean, that was really kind of the phrase of the day. You don't see a whole lot of that now. It's like, there's almost like this invisible dividing line, you know, with pop culture, you know. It's like suddenly, you know, like, Seinfeld, Quentin Tarantino, and Kurt Cobain killed that completely like in pop culture you know and you really don't see anything like that now instead 
you have something like Requiem for a Dream, which I think should be required <laughs> viewing for these kids. You don't hand them comic books, you know. I mean, with the, the whole vape crisis is right now. You know, mm-hmm. I could see them doing, you know, Kamala Khan versus, you know, the vape ape of Jersey City, you know, and try to yeah. make popcorn long like this, like, hashtag thing. I would buy that comic. Oh, so would I. <laughs> for a dollar, I would buy it. I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> but, you know... Hashtag vape ape. It's like the approach, I mean, yeah, it was kind of disturbing, but, I mean, we're grown men and we're laughing about it now, but I think, really, what you need to do is scare kids. I mean, I'm all about, like, the whole scared straight program, and, you know, it's it, it, it's it's a funny little time capsule of the thing, and I think that's, you know, with the preachy treats. And another really big thing with the, the preachy treats is the Jack Chick tracks, which you, you can't get in a reprint or anything no. like this. The best that you can do is, you know, you're out on a Sunday afternoon. Stumble upon them. Target parking lots, like, Sunday. You'll find them, like, in little baggies with the magnets attached. And, like, I will actually go from car to car and, like, steal them if, like, it's one that I don't have. (laughs) Hashtag blessed. (laughs) You know, it's, like, sort of this, like, little sport that my wife and I do. Uh, So, that's, that's preachy treats right there. Uh, yeah, if you're keeping score, we are up to three hashtags in this episode, <laughs> Preachy Treats, Vape Ape, and Blessed. <laughs> but uh, talking talking about timestamps, let's, let's uh, talk about another very 1980s special episode. Uh, let's talk about a special episode of the X-Men. We've already brought Storm into the mix here. But uh, I am talking about 1985's Heroes for Hope starring the X-Men. Uh a game of exquisite corpse, if ever there was one. Uh, so I wrote down uh, not the entire uh, creative roster here, but basically, like one of the hallmarks of the 1980s was those like multi pop artist jam songs. Do they know it's Christmas? We are the world. This is We Are the World in comic form. Uh, you know, yeah, uh, another attempt from that era to sort of patriarchally uh, raise funds for uh, famine relief in Africa, uh, basically. But here's who some of, here's some of the people who worked on this comic: Stan Lee, Chris Claremont, Anna Senti, Bernie Wrightson, Jim Starlin, Jim Shooter, Louise Simonson, Bill Mantlo, Alan Moore, Harlan Ellison, Joe Duffy, Denny O'Neill, Steve Englehart, Mike Grell, Archie Goodwin, John Romita Jr., John Byrne, Charles Vess. Richard Corbin, Frank Miller, Brian Boland, Steve Rude, Brett Blevins, Herb Tripp, rest in peace. Jackson Geis, Howard Chaikin, Claus Jansen, Joe Sinnott, Terry Austin, Dan Green, Al Melgren, Bill Sinkevich, Carl Potts, Sal Buscema, Bob Layton, Joe Rubenstein, Steve Lealoa, Walt Simonson, and perhaps most notably, three pages written by Stephen King at the height of his cocaine powers. And I'd be willing to bet that Dan Aykroyd hung out in the room while this was being made. At this point, we were probably just months away from the debut of Maximum Overdrive. I'm going to scare the hell out of you. <laughs> uh, it, it's got it's got mid-80s X-Men written all over it, it's just to start. The opening uh, splash is by John Romita Jr. Uh, Rachel is on the team. Magneto's hanging out, uh, being bad at, be- at leading superheroes and wearing that uh, big fuchsia getup with the M on it. Colossus is in that red one-piece bathing suit with the with tearaway chest flap. Uh, that's that's the era of X-Men that we're talking about. So you know it's it's modern for the time, and yet the opening three pages are written by Stan Lee doing excuse me a Chris Claremont impression, uh, which while both are wordy individuals, <laughs> it is it is still jarring. <laughs> you know, just a bunch of people saying what they're doing. Um, 
you know, for the for the first like ten pages or so, it's it's you know standard superhero fare. Somebody's attacking the mansion. They can't figure out who. But then all of a sudden, King and Wrightson take over, and Kitty meets the specter of hunger and wastes away. Just very very kind of gruesome uh, imagery. And then we get Charles Vest drawing Kurt. Uh, being offered martyrdom on the cross and rejecting it. And in, in the final part of this kind of trifecta of, of horror in the midst of this, this X, charity X-Men comic, Richard Corbin draws the Brotherhood celebrating Magneto's defeat of humanity. They have, like, the last human has been killed at their feet. And uh, in addition to uh, classic Brotherhood mainstays like The Blob, and uh, Jason Wingard and Eunice the Untouchable. Uh, Hitler's there, and he calls Magneto an apt pupil, which is funny uh, because that's a movie that hadn't come out yet where Ian McKellen plays an old Nazi based on a novel by Stephen King. It's all connected. <laughs> um, it's just that particular section of the book is, is dark in a way that only mid-'80s comics could be, really. Um, there's a line that specifically says... Dead babies still clinging pointlessly to dead breasts. That's bleak, yo. I love that Stephen King like practically uh, plagiarizes himself. Around that time, he had that story Survivor type. It's actually being finally filmed for the new Creep Show anthology, mm-hmm. but you know involves auto cannibalism and the phrase "Good food, good meat, good God, let's eat," which Kitty repeats in this story. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so then, then the mood shifts dramatically because we get a sequence in which Storm is pelted with pies by a clown uh, until she realizes that she can feed these pies to starving African children, uh, which gives the X-Men the idea to go to Africa and spend days feeding the hungry while they track down this entity that supposedly has been tormenting them. There's not a lot of logic in this section of the book. But, uh, you know, the funny thing about all this is, is A, they never really bothered to play into Storm's guilt over abandoning the people who once worshipped her as a goddess uh, in Africa, and B, it's a noble act you will never see again because superhero comics don't sell on the strength of actual good deeds. (laughs) Uh, But in the end, the X-Men, because they have to punch someone, the X-Men confront the ancient embodiment of misery, which takes the form of Rogue in that classic trope where she steals everyone's powers. Uh, and then Storm, for some reason, knows how to defeat the creature because she, uh, this is Jim Shooter's part by the Bizzle, just, you know, I think it helps. Uh, she spouts some nonsense about having genetic memory tied to her ancestors, uh, and then the X-Men feed more starving people, and then eventually they're rescued by, I don't know, let's say, (laughs) Mo. But, you know, it's, it's... It's it's a it's an all star jam, but it's also a mess. But it's also for a good cause, and it's also beautifully drawn in places. Um, it's a it's a whole lot. <laughs> when you brought it up, I did the research. There was a DC companion called Heroes Against Hunger, which would have been a better title for this comic. Which was a similar jam. Uh, this one spearheaded. Actually, they were both spearheaded by Starlin and Wrights. How about that? So they are involved in both. This one has a Neil Adams cover of Superman 
kneeling and looking sad in front of all the starving people and Batman looking off into the middle distance and Lex Luthor in his, you know, green and purple superpowers armor proclaiming, They're dying, Superman, and not all your power can save them. So Lex is just sort of rubbing it in. Mm-hmm. And it had, I mean, it was, you know, Starlin, and Carrie Bates, Paul Levitz, Mike Barr, J.M. DeMattis, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Len Wein, rest in peace, uh, Steve Englehart, Doug Mensch, art by George Perez, Dennis Cowan, Jander Seema, Keith Giffen, Bernie Wrightson, Kurt Swan, Barry Windsor Smith, mm-hmm. Walt Simonson, Dave Gibbons, Dan Jurgens, Joe Kubert, and, I kid you not, the king himself, Jack Kirby. What year was this again? 86. Wow. Yeah. And it's just Superman and Batman go to Ethiopia to try to help out, and they meet the Peace Corps, and Lex Luthor's there, and then they fight a big, green-skinned, four-armed, giant alien called the Master, because... Again, superheroes still need to punch someone. Feeds on entropy, so he is strengthened by the famine. Hashtag bless the reins. Yep. (laughs) That was a time. And it's not a time that isn't happening still. There are still famines. It's just that... No one's doing all-star jam superhero comics about it. Yes. But Weezer covered Toto's Africa? That's a thing. Yeah. And so did Pitbull. (laughs) You just upset me. (laughs) You told me a thing I didn't know, and unhappy exists. (laughs) Uh, But he is Mr. Worldwide. (laughs) Oh, man. I think the table's turned back to you, sir. Oh, that was just me adding on to yours. You were appending. That was an appendix. That was not a... Guys, it's still Matt's turn. Yes. That was me just... I had to... You brought this up earlier today, and I was like, I thought there was a DC one. And so I looked it up, because I needed to append to that. I I was going to start out in the 90s, but I figure we're we're too into the 80s. Let me stick with the 80s for one more. All right. Um, So, you know, the 80s was... The, the, the start and home of a war against drugs. A war that 30 years, nearly 40 years later, we've most assuredly won by now, right? I mean, Nancy Reagan did team up with Mr. T, so I feel like that's case closed. Yes. Well, Nancy Reagan also actually had a little letter on the inside front cover of the New Teen Titans Drug Awareness Special. Uh, there were actually three of these. I am looking to get them all to complete my New Teen Titans collection. I've so far only found the first. So I'm going to be speaking on that one. I will say that of these t- sort of PSA comics, this has, the, outside of Jam comics, has the most impressive creative team you will find. Because this is an honest-to-God Wolfman and Perez joint. And I use that particular turn of phrase <laughs> for a reason. Uh, it, it, Giordano inks and Adrian Roy uh, colors. So it is the New Teen Titans creative team. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a fairly incredibly on the nose. You know, there are drugs and the New Teen Titans and they're teaming up with Speedy, canonically the worst of Teen Titans. Uh, hi, Hub. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, he, he's in there and they're trying to stop these kids from taking drugs and, you know, stop the drug dealers. Um, it, it's, it is earnest to a degree that makes it kind of painful to read. 
there are also through it these sort of interludes where they cut to these children talking about their the, the, the drugs they've taken. And it's all like, hi, I'm Timmy, and I'm 13 years old, and I've taken, smoked and drank alcohol and uppers and downers and cocaine and PCP, and credit where credit is due, it is not all minority children. There are a lot of white kids in here, too, because it would have been real easy to lean into that inner cities are where, quote-unquote inner cities, are where the drugs are, which was the 80, which was a very much an 80s thing. Um, it's, it's not great comics. It, it's real earnest. The, the, there are some actually kind of fun production elements to this. You know what I like when things are real earnest? When Ernest goes to camp. Yeah, I, I, okay, I, I, continue. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Ernest scared stupid. Uh, okay, um, the Starfire's costume covers a little more than it does in the comics. Like they don't have the the stripes with the the side boob in between that is her normal costume. But most importantly, this was the first appearance of the Protector. Because you see, this comic came out as a between, you know, the whatever the Council for Drug-Free America or whatever Nancy Reagan's thing was, DC Comics and Keebler. There is a Keebler elf on the cover, a part of the marquee. Is the Keebler elf posing with the Teen Titans? No. He's just part of the logo. Okay. The thing is, Batman and Robin had been licensed to Nabisco, so they couldn't use Robin. So instead... But this is a Teen Titans comic, Matt. Yes, but what they basically did is they colored over Dick Grayson and gave this character a different costume and just called him the Protector. And I'm fairly certain from some of the titles, it had been lettered with people saying Robin because there's things where they keep calling the Protector just Pro and there's clearly like space in the word bubble, in between pro and the next thing, because protector was too long to fit in the Robin space, but pro is too short. So, yeah, the protector would show up in all of these, would pop up occasionally on alternate Earths, and showed up in Heroes in Crisis talking about his drug problem before he was killed by Wally West. Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah, they brought that character into continuity, ladies and gents. I am saddened by that on... Um, Many, many levels. <laughs> but yeah, that's the New Teen Titans drug awareness comic. <laughs> now it's Robster. All right, and I'm going to get into what actually may be like the mother of all treasure troves of uh, drug comics right here. You are uh, sitting in front of me with a tome set. This is a tome. Uh, <laughs> this is actually going to be kind of a plug, too, for um, Craig Yo, who um, kind of uh, cultivates and, and designs his uh, series of books, The Yo Books. It's a great line. Anybody who has any kind of interest in, you know, genre, pre-code, you know, golden, silver age, horror, things like that, um, the best of his collections, I think, is Reefer Madness, which I've got in front of me right now, which is this wonderful collection of all these tales of the devil's lettuce. <laughs> it's, it's straight up propaganda. I mean, there's not really a whole lot you can really, you know, go into detail about. I mean, all the stories are more or less the same. You know, it's... The beginning of, you know, it's strange behavior to absolute obsession and unhappiness to mania to absolute insanity to crime and then eventually death. I mean, 
this this was very much um, declaring a war, like a, a social, you know, a, a, an absolute war on marijuana. Um, what makes this book so interesting, though, is uh, some of the talent that's involved with it. We've got uh, Siegel and Schuster. We've got Kirby. We've got Ross Andrew. We've got Jerry Robinson. We have Frank Frazetta. Go ahead, Matt. Okay. I, I, Frank Frazetta, who is often known for, you know, doing art that inspired the art on vans that are basically just hot boxes. Oh, yeah. Doing anti-drug comics. But yet, uh, he can stop the enemies of youth, as I'm looking at right <laughs> on here. He's a dope fiend. We better keep away from him. <laughs> I know, it's about as sincere. You imagine, like, you know, one of those late 80s rock bands, you know, doing some kind of, you know, screed about, you know, the dangers of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Or you can just listen to Mr. Brownstone. <laughs> I picture the old episodes of Dragnet where Jack Webb would stop and he would give you some sort of speech either at the camera or on the radio show right out at you about, you know, you know he was a good kid. A good kid until he started taking drugs. Just so every actually, there are several stories in this collection that actually end exactly like that. <laughs> There's a formula at play here. I mean, I think it was more in service of you know the government than any kind of like real sense of like the public good. Um, funny stuff. I mean, not really a whole lot more to say about it. I mean, I de you know definitely you know the yo books. Check them out. <laughs> All right. Uh, so. Uh, I am going to move on to, uh, so if you're looking for a comic with a resonant anti-suicide message, you know, the easy choice would be that issue of All-Star Superman where he talks the young person off the ledge by saying you're much stronger than you think you are. It is a very powerful moment uh, in, in comics, but it's also actually just a small portion of that issue in a larger story. Uh, so I actually decided to go with uh, an issue of Deadpool. Hear me out. Uh, this is from 2016, so I, I don't know what volume we're on at this point because by 2016 we're in, you know, the period of Crisis on Infinite Relaunches. But uh, it's definitely issue number 20, uh, written by Jerry Duggan, drawn by Matteo Lolly, uh, who incidentally will be the creative team on the upcoming Marauders book uh, under Dawn of X, uh, which is a grim and gritty reboot of Kitty's fairy tale. But anyway, uh, basically the the plot, you know, it, it's, it's actually a, a surprisingly great issue. Uh, you know, I would actually put it up there with anything in the Joe Kelly run. But, you know, Wade talks uh, a young woman down off the ledge, and it, it works because Deadpool does it in his own way. He's still being Deadpool. This isn't, this isn't a painfully earnest comic. It's, it's a Deadpool comic that actually, it maintains the tone of the book while still doing something important. Uh, basically, you know, he says flat out at the beginning, I'm sure a real hero would have something profound to say to you to make you feel better instantly, but I'm all you got. So he does Deadpool things. He talks her ear off. He annoys the shit out of her. Half pays attention to her while he's texting on his phone. And he takes her on his rounds as he beats up scumbags as a sort of pro bono work that he does for people who have written to the Avengers asking for help. Because at this point, he's on the, uh, the Unity Squad, uh, if you guys remember Uncanny Avengers, which I believe Duggan also wrote at the time. 
you know, and then she eventually she gets in on it. She takes turns kicking a criminal or two, bashing in some computers that are used to admin porn revenge, uh, revenge porn sites. You know, it, there, there's a therapeuticness to it. Uh, and then finally, at the end of the issue, he drops her off at, at the ER. Uh, when he was texting earlier, he was texting the hospital in advance to let them know that they were coming, and he convinces her to get help. Uh, you know, which is, it's, you know, again, it's, it's, it's sweet and it's powerful and it, it's not breaking the tone of, of your normal Deadpool comic to, to share this message. Uh, you know, and then finally, just to make sure that we don't forget what book we're reading, you know, Deadpool is thinking all this inspirational stuff about how life is fluid and there's always a chance of something great's waking around the corner and he steps in dog shit. Mm. <laughs> you know, uh, so uh, a heartwarming story stem to stern. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so that is, that, that was my next pick. I just wonder if that was, uh, inspired by the, uh, classic, the Larry Bodine issue of New Mutants. Oh. The, the boy who could construct holographic mm-hmm. light images who killed himself and he was a friend of Kitty's. He was just yeah. fooling. Yeah. Yeah, he was just we fooling. were just yeah. fooling. Yeah. Great stuff. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so this would not be a Three Amigos episode if I didn't talk about Batman for a little while. It wouldn't be a WM episode if I didn't talk about Batman for a little while. It wouldn't be you. You'd be a pod person. Yes, yeah. And not one of those gold balls pod people. Yeah. Pod people. No, no. You, you all know me and you all know that there's nothing Matt loves more than other than his wife and his cat than Batman. Um, so the 90s was a time of some really interesting Batman PSA comics. There were quite a few, and some of them were giveaways, and some of them were, you know, books you had to buy. And I bought all of them. <laughs> uh, there are three that I kind of was going back and forth and back and forth on which one I wanted to talk about. So I'm going to talk about each of them briefly. Um, the first is called Seduction of the Gun. It is written by uh, Matt, favorite writer, John Ostrander, um, with art by Vince Giorano. And it deals with guns and schools and kids. Uh, I couldn't find it, dig it out of my collection because I'm still working on that. Uh, but the one thing I remember—you'll get the shed up, up and running one day. Yes, it'll, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Um, we, I remember it being really gory, not in a necessarily an exploitative way, but they did not hide the fact that. This is the kind of damage a gun can do to a person. Like, I mean, there was someone, I remember, the one panel I remember, Giorano is an interesting artist, and if you've never seen his stuff, Google it. He did a lot of Batman in that period, like issues of Shadow of the Bat and this and that. But there's one where somebody gets shot in the face, and like the side of their face is gone. It's like, holy crap. This is not, a, a comic that was not a vertigo or suggested for mature readers. It was something, it was big prestige form, or at least square bound comic that was out there. Like, woo! Um, then there is also Batman Death of the Innocents. This is about landmines. This was a, the, apparently DC did a series of books for landmine awareness. Um, a Superman and a Superman Wonder Woman one that were distributed in the countries where there were still landmines left over that were freebies. And then this one... The landmines were freebies? Well, yeah, the landmines were freebies, too. Unfortunately, I think that's part of the problem. Um, (laughs) But this one was, you know, sold to an American audience. And it was to sort of encourage you to learn more and to help support the UN efforts to get rid of landmines. And again, this has got a 
pretty high-tier creative team. It's Denny O'Neill, Joe Staten pencils, and Bill Sienkiewicz art. Mm. And Batman has to go to a fictional Eastern European country after one of the employees of Wayne Enterprises is killed by a landmine and find his daughter, who's been taken by the rebel forces in the country. And he saves the girl, and they're waiting for the plane, and she sees something that looks like a toy, and she picks it up, and it's a landmine, and she dies too. This does teach the important lessons about landmines. It also reinforces the fact that if you work for Bruce Wayne, don't go to Eastern Europe, because you're going to be kidnapped. Just ask Lucius Fox. It's happened to him at least once, I'm pretty sure two or three times. Uh, the final is actually probably the most interesting of the lot. This is a book called Batman the Ultimate Evil. It's a two-part prestige format miniseries that actually adapts a Batman novel of the same name. I, in a quick cursory Google search while doing other things, I couldn't find the, the artist credit on it. But I found more about the novel than the comics. It's written by a novelist named Andrew Vax, a V-A-C-C-H-S. Uh, he is a lawyer who writes crime novels um, because he was a child advocate and has dedicated his life to stopping uh, child sex rings and sex tourism. And this is Batman encountering a ring in Gotham City that is selling children abroad. And there's a whole thing where he finds out that his mother had been trying to stop this. And there are hints that the Waynes were actually assassinated because Martha was trying to stop this sex ring. Um, That's quite a retcon. It is. I mean, it's, it's clearly out of continuity. And I mean, let's be fair. There's numerous times where the Waynes' deaths are suddenly part of a grander mm -hmm. thing. True. I prefer they were just mugged by some schlub. I think that more fits, but that's, yeah. yeah. That's neither here nor there for this discussion. Um, the thing about this is it it does the earnestness right in that this is something that, this is Vax's life, life's work is to stop this stuff. And he works a story that makes sense and is truly dark. And Batman is a character that that can work with. I don't think you could really do a Superman story around this thematically. Mm. Uh, but Batman, it works. And you can probably find this in dollar bins. You can probably find the book in used bookstores. Both of them have, you know, back matter that talks about, you know, this the, the sex trafficking and what you can do and what it does to people. It is truly upsetting stuff, which it's supposed to be. I mean, of all of the things, it's, it is seriously dark and really interesting work. All right. I'm that downer. Um, yeah. No, really good choices. Um, yeah. I'm going to go uh, actually a little earlier to the uh, very dawn of the 90s, 1990, in fact, um, the inaugural Earth Day. And a couple of books, you know, at least one definitely that was tied to it. And one, you know, maybe so. Um, you had late 80s Eisner Darling Concrete from Paul Chadwick. And they did a one-shot, um, the Earth Day special, which was meant to both celebrate and to raise, you know, environmental awareness. And it's really beautiful um, how 
impassioned Chadwick is with you know the very first story with Concrete, who makes you know this this plea to almost equate modern environmentalism with patriotism that this should very much be you know a non-political issue this is an american issue to get behind this to sort of better the environment to you know lower you know rely less on the resources and and everything um also in the book um mobius tells a wonderful completely non-concrete related story of a you know very post-apocalyptic earth as only mobius could illustrate it and sort of you know the beauty of you know reinvigorating it with lush greenness you know um and charlie vess illustrates selected writings from thoreau and it's backed up you know chadwick has a couple more stories where he goes more specifically into things like the rainforest and uh it's a really nice piece of work i mean it's, it, it is very earnest you could almost say it's, it's very much of its time i mean even though it, you know it is something i mean it's just even more relevant today you know with you know climate change and um but the other uh, book that it, it almost reminded me of that and i don't know if it was intentional was uh the 1990 summer special from the new mutants written by Anne Nesenti, and it was la uh, brett blevins's last mm -hmm. hurrah as a new mutants artist um the majority of the book is basically um a very tongue-in-cheek attack on media oversaturation you know media theory and things like that but sort of bookended in it is an environmental message where you know where the new mutants are caught up in this you know extra dimensional adventure kind of like mojo world this is very much like mojo world but a lot more on the nose with you know there's there's sat uh, parodies of uh rupert murdoch and george bush um there's in the real world uh these local kids find a polluted river that they want cleaned up and they actually kind of do a sit-in and they attract the media and they sort of manipulate the media to actually get this river cleaned up and the new mutants have this adventure there where they're absolutely sick of television and warlock is like the most tv addicted which they make a point of and they come back from this dimension and they've, they've had it it's like they're going to throw out every tv in the house but then they realize what these kids did and what they were able to do with the media and get this river clean up and they decide okay maybe it's not that bad let's watch Twin Peaks tonight yeah I was gonna say <laughs> Sunspot uh, yeah, of okay. all of them his, his legendary <laughs> obsession with Magnum P.I. yeah so kind of notable you know being you know Brett Blevins' last hurrah it's almost it feels very much like the last true New Mutant story also I mean this is around the time where you know Cable really took in the seeds of X-Force were planted where you have one last extra dimensional romp you know, that's not illustrated by Art Adams, as we, you know, had, you know, the previous few, you know, annuals. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that was Earth Day 1990, and it, was, it just felt like it was a much more optimistic time where, you know, I, I, I can remember... That was, like, the first time I ever remember it recycling was mm -hmm. around then. I mean, that was never a thing in the 80s. And, you know, yeah, we all have blue yeah. buckets. <laughs> yeah, but it's just, you know, a cool little time capsule. Yeah. Uh, so for my last pick, uh, you know, um, you may notice I've, I've kind of, you know, the, 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 the snark level was pretty high with, with Heroes for Hope, and, and I'm kind of progressively uh, toning it down. But, you know, my, my last pick here is uh, fairly recent. It's the 2017 
uh, Love is Love anthology. I, I really don't have anything jokey to say about this book. It was an anthology uh, published in 2017 by IDW to benefit the victims of the Pulse nightclub shooting. Uh, it emphasizes uh, queer characters and stories. Uh, creator list includes folks like Steve Orlando, T. Franklin, uh, Gail Simone, Paul Dini, Joe Kelly, Jonathan Hickman, Bendis, uh, Jason Aaron, Mark Miller, Cena Grace, G. Willow Wilson, Jim Lee, Brad Meltzer, Patton Oswalt, uh, doing a mix of you know everything from pinups to one-page stories to, to short stories. Um, you know, it's a it's a beautiful call for acceptance of the queer community, not just in comics but in society in general. And and you know, y'all should read it uh, uh, absolutely. Um, despite it being uh, an IDW joint, uh, it also it, it included. Uh, content and licensing from Archie and DC, so you got the Riverdale gang, and you got a ton of DC characters, uh, Batman, Wonder Woman, Batwoman, Apollo and Midnighter. Um, okay. There is one page uh, where Deathstroke throws all his guns into a dumpster and says he's only going to use karate from now on. <laughs> that might be, like, the one page if I'm going to poke fun at anything, but, I mean, otherwise, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I think this is an important work, and, and in fact, I remember... Uh, when Eisner voting came around for 2018, for 2017's book, like there there was a weird like time thing where people thought it was too late for whatever that year's Eisner's was, and then they walked it back and then added it to the nominations. Because um, I don't think they would have been unscathed had they not done so. But uh, you know. Uh, Definitely an important issue and definitely worth a read. Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> Great book. Yeah. Um, so I'm wrapping up today with something that's a little bit of a stretch of our normal format because it is not a comic book. It is an episode of an animated series. Get out! <laughs> and one that is has a solid comic book... Uh, Pedigree? To pedigree, that's a good word. Despite it not being inspired directly by a comic book. Um, this is an episode of Gargoyles, which, for those of you on the younger side who might not be aware of it, Gargoyles was a 1990s cartoon that came out part of the Disney Afternoon, but as opposed to the Disney Afternoon, which was a thing back in the day before there was Cartoon Network. You'd get cartoons every night, every afternoon at blocks on your main networks. And... A syndicated one was the Disney Afternoon, and they would do four Disney cartoons. DuckTales, Tailspin, Darkwing Duck, various others cycling in and out. Gargoyles was the only one that was weekly. The rest of them were shown every day. Gargoyles would only show up on Fridays. They were. It was like, um, remember how in the Super Bro Mario Brothers Super Show, Zelda would be on Fridays? Yes. Guys, we're fucking old! Yeah! <laughs> um, but Gargoyles was created by Greg Wiseman who is the showrunner and developer of Young Justice and the Spectacular Spider-Man. Uh, he also wrote Captain Adam for years and years and years. Um, and has done other... He did a recent uh, Starbrand and Nightmask miniseries for Marvel. Oh, that was him? That was him. Wow. Um, Wiseman is a genius when it comes to animated series. He does really deep character stuff, really dynamic, action-oriented plots. Uh, Episode 8 of the first season was an episode called Deadly Force. Um, it dealt with the, the... I guess I probably should, if you've never heard of Gargoyles, give you a little bit of the understanding of what the show was. 
Um, I could try to do the introduction to the show, which I know by heart, in my best Keith David voice, but that might be offensive, so I won't do that. Um, it is about a group of gargoyles who, as it turned back in the days of history, gargoyles were actual living, breathing creatures that would turn stone by day and come alive at night. Well, a group of Scottish gargoyles had been cursed to remain stone forever. The curse was broken in the 1990s, and now they're living in New York and hanging out with a police detective and fighting most of the cast of Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, they, yeah, their, their villains were voiced pretty much entirely by Next Gen alums. Uh, it was great. Um, but the... And each of... Gargoyles didn't have names. You know, it's like, well, how... Of course, I know him. He's him. That's, that's him. That's her. We, we don't need specific names. It's a whole kind of odd thing. Except for the leader of the gargoyles, he was Goliath. Uh, but when they all the gargoyles wake up, they all get names based on New York landmarks and neighborhoods. And one of the gargoyles is Broadway. Broadway is big and he's kind of chubby and he's boy, voiced by uh, Bill Figurebake, who is... Oh, from Coach. From Coach. And Patrick, Patrick, and Patrick from Coach Yes. M-O-O-N. And yet no Tom Cullen. <laughs> um, he, and so he's... This big, sort of good-natured gargoyle who loves uh, detective stories. He, he's kind of a media junkie, hence, you know, Broadway. Um, and he has developed a special rapport with their human friend, Elisa Maza, who is a detective with the NYPD. Well, one day, Elisa gets home. In this episode, Elisa starts out by confronting local mobster Tony Dracon, voiced by 90s heartthrob Richard Grieco. Um, <laughs> and, uh, she, she, you know, Dracon's been able to skate on charges again, and so he's out there. And Elisa gets home after this, and Broadway shows up, and they're talking, and Elisa's, you know, puttering around the kitchen doing stuff, and she's left her gun out. And Broadway's like, ooh, and he picks it up and he starts playing with it because, you know, he's seen all these westerns and these cop shows and he's just playing with the gun. And the gun goes off. And Elisa gets shot. And she goes down. This was and, at 4.30 in the afternoon. Yes. And there is blood. And he, like, flies her to the emergency room and then goes out and just starts... You know, taking out his anger at himself on criminals. When the other gargoyles find out, Goliath, who's the leader of the gargoyles, voiced by the previously mentioned Keith David, uh, you know, figures this must be Dracon, and he goes on a rampage. And you know, when he finally gets to Dracon, he's about ready to like gore him. When Broadway, he's like, "No, no, it was me." And it's it's a lesson about gun safety. About you know, you even the professionals have to lock up their guns. And every, and every episode after that, when you see Elisa go home, you see her lock her gun in a gun safe. It becomes an actual point of continuity. Anytime the gargoyles are facing criminals after that, Broadway smashes their guns first. He develops... Guns become anathema to him. It's really interesting character work. It's the kind of thing that Weissman does, even in kids' cartoons. Uh... What makes this a little more interesting is that Disney okayed this for a cartoon airing at 4.30 in the afternoon. Yeah. But when Gargoyles was in syndication at 1 a.m. on what was Toon Disney and is now Disney XD, initially they just pulled this episode 
because it made them uncomfortable, them being the standards and practices folks at Disney. And when eventually they put it back in the rotation, they had to make animation changes to remove the blood and remove the shots of Elisa's fallen form after she is shot. It's like just close-ups of her face. Uh, the uncut version is on the DVDs for Gargoyles Season 1. Um, it's a really solid episode of a really of what is probably my second or third favorite cartoon of all time, depending on whether it's Gargoyles or Young Justice that particular day, hmm. uh, with Batman the Animated Series at number one. We're not worthy. Um, uh, it's, and also, to, to continue the Star Trek jokes, it is the first appearance of Nichelle Nichols, Lieutenant Uhura, as... Uh, Elisa's mother, who would continue to be on the show as Elisa's mother throughout the series, because every Star Trek series gets in on the act in this show up to that point. <laughs> it, it, these DVDs are out there. If you've never seen Gargoyles and if you like Young Justice, this is really a show that's worth your time. You know, it's amazing that that episode is forbidden when, you know, you had an entire decade of children's programming, like, you know, your G.I. Joes and everything, that kind of taught you that guns aren't going to hurt anybody because nobody can ever hit a goddamn thing with them. Yeah. You, um, know. you know, that, that it's really funny that you bring that up because um, there was a new volume of G.I. Joe that launched, like, just last week. And you know, you know how we talk about, like, G.I. Joe the movie mm -hmm. and how they had to ADR that Duke's in a coma line because <laughs> yeah. he was originally going to die? Yeah. Uh, spoilers! They killed Duke, like, halfway through the first issue. Oof. Yeah. So he becomes, like, a martyr for this, like, basically Cobra's already taken over the world. Somebody getting body slammed. Yeah. So the, <laughs> the, the, the Joes form this, like, civilian resistance strike force. It's it's a very it, it's a very Trump-era G.I. Joe, but, you know, for someone, like, I mean, I haven't read G.I. Joe or watched G.I. Joe in years. Mm -hmm. You know, it was nice to kind of revisit that and just see what a modern take on Roadblock is. Yeah. He didn't rhyme, which was a concern for me. But that's, you know, again, it's been like 30-some years. You're, you're out of rhymes after a while. My, my roadblock doesn't need to see clear to fracture your rear. I mean, that's... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But, uh, yeah, we, we, we tackled some weighty, weighty issues today. We did. We reached it. was a treat. And um, I, I promise I'll stop binding my feet, Dads. <laughs> Good. Just remember... This is your brain. This is your brain on comics. Uh, questions. Matt wouldn't let me end the podcast any other way. I so. needed to. I just needed that. This is how we're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Bye! That's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, the ability to promote your work on our site, and a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. Big thanks to our patrons, uh, Steve Morris from Shelf Dust and the M&T, Charlie Davis from the Young Ones podcast, Robert Secundus from Hoxpox Talks, and Scott Madrinsky from Mojoswork.com. You can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Not a fan of social media? Sign up for our weekly Q newsletter, which gives you the best of WMQ every week in your inbox. Finally, and most importantly, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views, and we'll see you next time. A man and a woman had a little baby. Yes, they did.
They had three in the family That's a magic number